really excited to be here. I'm impressed with you guys are here because if you're like me and you're not so much a morning person, this is, this is objectively the worst day of the year. Just hands down. Spring forward, lose an hour. I hate it. So preaching a sermon at 8.30, which is actually 7.30, that was, was a struggle for me. So I made the mistake between services of going and getting a large mocha caramel something or another, <laughs> which I don't usually drink coffee at all, so I'm feeling a little bit jittery. All right? So if I start getting excited and speeding up, it's, it's the coffee's fault, so that's why I apologize for that. But... But I'm really excited to be here. Um, we're going to look at a story today that I love. Um, it's a well-known story from the life of Jesus. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, I love studying world religions. All right? So much, in fact, that in college, I majored in religious studies. All I did for most of my classes was take all these comparative religion courses. All right? And this, this wasn't a Christian college, so I was getting a very different perspective than I was used to. But... The study of religion fascinates me because religion, all right, worldview, kind of thoughts about the bigger questions of life are absolutely universal to the human condition, okay? I don't care if you claim to be an atheist, everyone has some sort of religion. Everyone believes something about the major questions in life, like who am I, why am I here, what's the meaning of life, Does, does anything happen after we die? Everyone thinks about these things. Everyone has some sort of worldview or, or code that they live by. So, so religion fascinates me because everybody has some sort of religion. So I love to see all the similarities and the differences and to compare them and, and see what they're like. I read an article recently that claimed that there are 4,200 different religions in the world. That's a lot of religions, right? That's a lot of different ways to believe. That's a lot of different ways to live. But if you're kind of paying attention these days, what do you usually hear? Everyone kind of says, generally, you know, everyone really kind of believes the same thing. You know, all these different religions, they all lead to the same God. They all really kind of teach the same thing. They all end up in the same place. That's kind of what you'll generally hear these days. And surprisingly, I actually generally agree. I don't know, that might surprise you a little bit. But I do think that almost all religions basically teach the same thing, except that I would argue for one of them. And that's why one of my favorite things is to talk about what it is about biblical Christianity, the ways that biblical Christianity are completely and utterly unique from anything else out there. So so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at one small story from the life of Jesus that shows us one of the very important ways that, that Christianity is completely distinct from anything else you will find out there. So go ahead and look in your Bibles at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version of the Bible. You can find that printed in your bulletin if you want to follow along there, or you can follow along in in whatever translation you'd like. So this is God's Word, Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, 
Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's, let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for this truth and that it reveals to us uh, your son and, and your grace and your mercy. Father, right now I pray that you would take away any distractions, uh, focus our minds and our hearts on, on the text this morning. I pray that we would get out of this uh, what you want us to. Uh, show us Christ. Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We pray that we would walk away amazed at, at you and your mercy and your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, so there's a lot going on in this passage, and there are just a few different things that I kind of want to draw out from this, from this well-known story, but, but let's set the stage for a second really quickly. We're at, we're at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, so we're only in the second chapter of Mark. Alright, so there's only been one chapter before, and the whole book begins with these words. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this whole book is about the life, ministry, death, and then the resurrection of this man named Jesus. And then verses 14 and 15 in chapter 1 says this. It says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the rest of chapter 1 is about the beginning of Jesus' teaching and healing ministry. Then our story begins. Jesus shows up at home. He comes to Capernaum. And now... He's been healing a lot of people for a little while now, so, so Jesus obviously starts to become a little bit famous. Um, people are, are eager to get to Jesus, they're, they're eager to get a part, of this, a part of this healing themselves. Imagine if, if someone showed up in Woodside today and actually had the power to just start healing people. You know, blind people were seeing, crippled people were getting up and walking. What would happen? A lot of people would go to this guy. This would be a pretty big deal. It would be on the news and there would all be all these crowds kind of gathered around. And, and that's what's going on right now in this situation. So this huge crowd shows up. The place is absolutely packed. The house is surrounded by people. They're hanging in the windows. The, the door is crammed and, and nobody can get to Jesus because everybody wants to hear what he has to say. So imagine that happening in this place. You know, you have hundreds of people in here. you got 20 people in each pew. The, the balcony is, is creaking with overcrowding. There's people hanging in the windows and, and the street trying to just listen in and, and see what's going on. This is the kind of crowd that Jesus drew, right? Not Matthew Shores doesn't draw a crowd like this. Jesus drew a crowd like this. If he was here, this place would be slammed. And that's what's going on right now in this story. Jesus, you know, he's a smart guy, though, so he takes advantage of the crowd. And what does he do? He doesn't start to heal them. He starts to teach them. So it's probably quiet. Remember, this Jesus guy, he's been teaching. Uh, people are impressed. He's been healing. So everybody wants to hear what this guy has to say. Um, so there's probably a hush over the crowd. As people are straining to hear what Jesus has to say. All eyes are on him. It's quiet. He's teaching. And suddenly, there's a bit of an interruption. There's, there's some sort of strange noise overhead. And probably, as he's teaching, little debris begins to fall down around Jesus. So, so what's going on? Our, our story then pauses to tell us about four guys. They've heard that Jesus is here. And they've heard that this Jesus guy does a lot of healing. And they see their chance. They've got this friend. 
These are some good friends. They know this guy they've got. He's called a paralytic, um, which just means he's paralyzed. We don't know how paralyzed. He, he couldn't walk. It might have been even worse. We don't know for how long. It could have been his entire life. It could have been years. But, but they see their chance. They go. They put their friend on his mat. They, they each take a corner. They pick him up, and they are going to Jesus. They know Jesus can heal our friend. But they get there a little bit late to the party. Um, they show up. The crowds are already there. The door's blocked. They, they cannot get into Jesus while, while carrying this guy on a mat. But these guys are resilient, okay? They, they don't give up. What do they do? They somehow manage to climb the house, four guys, while, while holding someone on a mat. They get to the roof. Now what? Now, roofs then were a little bit different than ours. Um, they were flat, always flat. They had like a couple big wooden cross beams. But then the roof was actually made out of branches and leaves and thatch and then covered in mud. So they get on this roof, they know Jesus is down there, and they just start digging. And this would have taken a while. Remember, they've got to make a hole big enough for an entire man to lie down to get through. So this was a long process. While Jesus is teaching, there's something strange going on overhead. Um, So the noise these people are hearing are these guys digging, digging, digging. They're so committed. They have so much faith that Jesus can heal their friend that they're willing to do anything to get to him. They finally, they open up a hole. I kind of imagine Jesus looking up and seeing kind of foreheads pop out. And they take their friend, they put four ropes on each corner, and they slowly lower him down directly at the feet of Jesus. Now this is quite a scene. Imagine that happening right now as this is going on. That would be quite the disturbance. And quite unfortunate, actually. These guys would have gone through all this effort. They would have ruined our ceiling. They would have put this guy right in front of me. But then poor guy, right, he's, he's laying in front of Matthew Shores. And uh, I can't do anything for him. All right, so, so no good for them. But, but not Jesus. So these guys go through all this. There's this great scene. And all of a sudden, here's this paralyzed man laying in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? In verse 5, he looks at the man. This is all we're told. He looks at him and it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wait. Wait a second. Jesus. Let's focus here. Think about this. Why is this guy here? Jesus has been healing people. And all of a sudden, here's a guy in very obvious need of healing. But Jesus doesn't heal him. He forgives his sins. What is Jesus doing? I, I thought this Jesus guy was, was pretty smart. Um, what is Jesus doing here? It seems that everyone except Jesus knows what he wants. Now, this is what Jesus is doing. He's actually doing something very profound and at the same time terribly offensive. He's telling this poor paralytic man in front of him that you've got to go deeper. Jesus is basically looking at this lame, crippled man lying in front of him, unable to walk, And he is basically telling him that this man is mistaken about what his real problem is. Jesus is basically saying to this man that your broken and useless legs are not that big of a deal. And this is what Jesus says to every one of us. And this is why Jesus can be so offensive to so many people. Jesus basically looks you in the eyes and says that your dying of cancer is not your problem. Your, your marriage that is falling apart around you is not your problem. Your extreme poverty is not your problem. And that is a very offensive thing to say to someone who is in the midst of suffering. But Jesus has no problem saying it. Now, Jesus recognizes all of these things as very real problems, and he cares about them. But what he is saying is that ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, none of these really matter 
if your one real problem is not first taken care of. And, and that's what this story, that's what the gospel is all about. Your one real problem, my one real problem, is that we are sinners. Our real problem is sin. Oh, wait a second. What is sin? That's a very Christian word. We, we, we talk about it a lot. Let's, let's make sure we know exactly what sin is. We, we generally define sin these days as kind of doing bad things or, or disobeying God. It's a sin to watch rated R movies or to swear or to listen to non-Christian music. That's kind of how we've come to define sin. That's actually not how the Bible defines sin. And I think the best definition in all of the Bible is Romans 14.23. This is the best definition of sin in the Bible. Romans 14.23. Short and sweet, it says, whatever is not from faith is sin. That's quite the claim. This, this definition has just made um, sin much more broad than we ever like to think. So what is faith? Faith is just trusting God. It's, it's, it's believing in God. It, it's taking God at his word. It's believing that what he says is true. So sin then is just unbelief. It's not taking God at his word. It's, it's disbelieving God and, and not trusting God. And this definition of sin does a lot of things. Um, this definition of sin could make preaching this sermon a sin. It could make painting your house a sin. It could make handing out tracts on the street sin. <laughs> Sin in the Bible is not just about the actions themselves, which is what we always think when we think sin. We think bad actions. But in the Bible, sin is about the heart or the motivation that is behind those actions. Any action not done from a position of faith, from a position of trusting God, the Bible says, is sin. If I do a good thing, like preaching a sermon up here about Jesus... But I do it from a heart that desires to, to puff myself up, to impress you guys, or to, to look really smart. Um, then my preaching this sermon is sin. At the root of all sin is unbelief. It's not trusting or not believing in God. But we often, you know, I've gotten this question a lot, we often kind of wonder, you know, why is sin so bad? You know, what, why is sin our one big problem? What's, what's the deal with sin? Why is God so angry about sin? And I've heard it explained to me um, like this once. Say a friend comes to you and offers to do a, a favor for you. And he promises on his own honor and on his own integrity that he will follow through. He will do this thing for you. But you say to him, you come back and you're like, ah, you know what, friend? I've decided that I, I just can't trust you anymore. Now, you know, he says, I promise that I'm going to do this good thing for you. You can trust me. I'm going to do it. You come to him and say, you know what? Sorry, I, I just don't believe you. I just can't trust you. If that was your response to this promise of a favor, then your friend is perfectly justified in being insulted. You have offended him greatly. You have called him to question and you have robbed him of his dignity and his character and his honor. All right? This person would have a right to be angry. And on top of that, think about it, the more trustworthy, the more honorable the person is that promises to do you this favor, the more insulting it is if you reject that promise. Are you following me? Am I explaining this kind of clearly? And this, I think, gives us an idea of how terribly offensive sin is to God. Because the Bible says that God is infinitely wise, and he is infinitely honorable, and infinitely trustworthy. So it is infinitely insulting, then, to not trust God, to, to reject what God says and to do what we think is, is better than this God. He is perfectly justified in being angry at sin like this. 
Imagine if you went to a friend and said, I love you, I'm going to do this good thing for you, I promise that I'm going to do it. And they just say, nope, I don't trust you. You would be offended. Now take that and multiply it by about a billion, okay? And, and that's how offended God is at sin. So, so whatever is not of faith is sin. Now, if, if, if you're not, you should, you should be getting really uncomfortable right now, because I am. Um, we have all done countless things that are not from faith. We have, we have all sinned countless times, and the Bible says very clearly that the penalty for sin is death. God is perfect. He is 100% pure and righteous and good. And as our creator, he requires of us that same perfection. He requires 100% perfection. And we all fall woefully short of that. I fall embarrassingly short of that. So we all deserve death. And not just physical death, the Bible says. It says spiritual death. It says eternal death. Separation from God. So that is a problem. And Jesus is saying here to this man that this is the only real problem that matters. Whatever it else, whatever else it is that you are struggling with, no matter how big it is, is nothing compared to your sin and your separation from God. So Jesus looks at this man, he's crippled, he obviously wants healing, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Don't miss how big of a deal this is. This is one of the most distinctive things about our faith. This is one of those things that most sets Christianity apart from other religions. It is the truth that your sins can be forgiven by God. Everyone has done things that they know are wrong. Whether you're a Christian or not, everyone has done things that deep down they know are wrong. And everyone feels guilt for those things that they've done. Everyone knows that they're not good enough. I, I, I like to make the case that, that I think sin and, and evil and things like this are, are a couple of the things in Christianity that, that you don't even have to defend. Christian, everyone, Christian and recognizes that there's, there's something not right with the world. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize that. Everyone recognizes that something is off. And um, everyone, if they're honest, recognizes that there's something off within themselves. Paul talks about it. He wants to do these things, but, but he always gets caught doing these things. He doesn't want to do these things, but he always ends up doing these things. There's something off inside of each one of us. We all know that we're sinners. And... and Follow me here. The fact that we recognize this, the fact that we feel bad for things that we do, I think is proof of the existence of God. Think about it. Guilt makes no sense unless there is someone out there that we are guilty before. I have felt this guilt. You have felt this guilt. And you know in your heart that you do these things and for some reason you feel bad about them. Thus you know that there must be someone out there that you feel guilty before. This is, this is kind of what we're talking about here. This is what Jesus is talking about. He says that you're sinners, you're separated from God, which is, listen, that's, that's pretty bad news if this whole thing is right. Being separated from God is bad news, but God, right? You see that a lot in the Bible. This is the best phrase in the Bible. But God makes a way. God offers forgiveness of these sins, and he does it through Jesus. And this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the good news, that man can be freed of sin and its consequences. Now, listen, we know if you've read any of the, any of the Bible that Jesus did all kinds of miracles, didn't he? God did some amazing things. He, he separated the sea. He, he stopped the sun once. He, he made a donkey talk once. Kind of all these amazing things, but don't overlook the significance of the forgiveness of sins. 
This is perhaps the greatest of all the miracles that Jesus performs. It is taking a dead, lifeless heart, forgiving the sins of that heart, and bringing it back to life. The forgiveness of sins is God's greatest gift, and it tells us just how good that He is. The forgiveness of sins is God's greatest gift because it meets our greatest need. Look, I know we all have many needs. We have people struggling with poverty and and hunger and comfort and a need of love and security. We have countless needs, but the only need that really matters is that we are sinners and that we are spiritually dead. We are separated from God. If you don't know God yet, this is the only need that really matters. And God meets that need. God, God, he, he, you can't meet it, but he meets it for you. He does the work. He forgives the sin. He brings sinners back to him through Jesus Christ. What a gift. What a good God. There is no other God out there. There is no other religion that offers forgiveness of sins like this. In every other religion, you have to do something to make a way for yourself. You have to do something to impress this God or earn status or earn favor with this God. This is the one religion that you don't. No other faith offers reconciliation with God based on God's own work, based on God's grace for you. Christianity offers forgiveness of sins and and freedom and identity and security, and you will find it nowhere else. So it is the the best news in the world that anyone can receive is that God has forgiven their sins. Now you don't have to die. Now you don't have to be separated from God. You can live eternally with Him. Now, in some churches today, I I don't know if you've noticed this, it's kind of not cool to talk about eternity and heaven anymore in some churches, which doesn't make any sense to me. Because the Bible talks about it a lot. In, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says, that, it says that God took and he placed eternity into the hearts of men. God put eternity into the hearts of men and women. We all long for something more than this life. We all long for more than the 70 or 80 years that we get. And that desire, I think, makes no sense unless there is something else out there. The fact that we have hunger, the fact that we hunger, proves that something exists to satisfy that hunger. So the fact that I'm hungry proves the existence of food, the thing that that is designed to satisfy that hunger. So in the same way, I think the fact that we long for more than this life, that we long for something more than just this, um, I think that demonstrates that there has to be something more out there. We all feel it, and we all want it. By forgiving our sins and by reconciling us to God, this is what Jesus Christ does for us. He gives us, he meets that desire, and he gives us that eternity. And this is what Jesus does for this paralytic man, and this is what Jesus can do for each one of us. Jesus has done the best thing he could possibly do for anyone. He has forgiven this guy's sin. He has resolved the one real problem that this man had, and everyone should be excited and impressed and rejoicing, right? Not so much, though. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who are these scribes? These guys were like the Jewish religious leaders of the day. These were the really good religious people. And um, these guys are kind of like the Pharisees, if you know anything about them. Um, And these guys, they generally weren't big fans of Jesus. Um, They were always questioning him. They are always attacking him and accusing him and trying to trap him. And, and these are the guys that would eventually have Jesus arrested and crucified. 
A man's sins have been forgiven, and these guys are sitting there watching and, and complaining in their minds. There's no joy. They are not happy for the man, and they are not at all amazed by what Jesus has done. And remember, these are the religious guys, which should serve as a warning to us religious people. Make sure this is not your heart. Make sure that you aren't like these guys, grumbling and angry and complaining and and not joyful and not impressed by by what God has done. But these scribes are actually spot on. They're actually right in what they are thinking. In Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. These scribes, these these guys knew their Bible. You can't blame them for that. They knew the scriptures, and they knew that only God can forgive sins. Only God has the authority to heal a heart, because it is God that we sin against. Think about it. Think if if Vijay came up here right now and he punched me in the face. That wouldn't be very cool. But but then think if if Menzi then came up and said to Vijay, he said, you know what, Vijay, I apologize to you, or, you know, I forgive you for, for punching Matthew in the face. Wait a second, I'd be sitting here thinking, wait, you can't forgive him for him punching me in the face, right? The one who has sinned against has to do the forgiving. It has to be me that forgives VJ. And it's the same way with God, all right? Only God can forgive sins because it is God that is the one that has sinned against. So now all of a sudden, here's this man, he's, he's teaching and he's healing, and all of a sudden he's claiming to be able to do what only God can do. Now, do you see what this means? Do you see how clearly Jesus is claiming? What is he saying? He's saying that I am God. Jesus isn't just some great teacher. He's not just some magician performing these really cool tricks. Jesus is God, and he does things that only God can do. And the scribes instantly recognize what Jesus is claiming. They know exactly what Jesus is saying by making this claim. And they accuse him of blasphemy. Now, what is blasphemy? Uh, it, is, it was a very serious sin uh, back then to the Jews. It was punishable by death. Um, blasphemy was just insulting God or, or not speaking respectfully about God. It was, it was talking to God as if he wasn't God, as if he, as if he wasn't great and, and holy and almighty and powerful. And this is what blasphemy is. Blasphemy was also claiming to be God or to do things that only God can do when you weren't God. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's claiming to be God. And these scribes, they were not okay with that. But you've got to remember this. It's it's risky to think things around Jesus, okay? Be careful what you think. Uh, Psalm 94.11 says that God knows the thoughts of man. Remember, Jesus is God, so Jesus knows exactly what these guys are thinking. So in verses 8 and 9, he perceives their thoughts and he says to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? It's a great question, right? Which is easier, to forgive sins or to make a paralyzed man walk again? Think about it. I can stand up here right now and go around and look at each and every one of you and say, your your sins are forgiven, your your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. That's easy enough, right? But, but did anything actually happen? Did I actually forgive anyone's sins? Is there any way to prove that I actually did anything? No, there's, there's really not. Anyone can just walk around and say, you know, your sins are forgiven. It's not difficult at all. But it's, it's actually pretty hard for me to make a crippled man walk again, isn't it? I, I can't do it. 
I, I could walk around to a hundred different paralyzed people and say, ah, stand up and walk. And I'd probably just offend them. And, and nothing is actually going to happen. I have no power within me whatsoever to heal someone. So in a way, it is much easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Then in verses 10 through 12, Jesus says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. You you can't see a forgiven heart, right? We can't look into someone's soul and, and see that something has changed. So to prove that he had the authority to forgive sins, he also physically heals the man. The, the outward miracle proves the reality of the inward miracle that has already happened. The healing of the body proves the healing of the soul, the, the forgiveness of sins. By, by showing that he's able to heal the body, he's saying, I am also just as able to forgive and heal the soul. And when Jesus says something, it always happens. So the man, for the first time in maybe his life, the first time in at least many years, he gets up off on that nasty mat that he's probably been on his entire life. He stands up on new legs, and he picks it up, and he walks off. An absolute miracle. And Jesus is so good to this man. He takes care of his one great need, the forgiveness of sins and his reconciliation to God, and he heals his body as well. And then at the end of verse 12, we're told that the crowd is absolutely awestruck. Never before had they seen such a thing. They were amazed and, and praised God and said to one another, We have never seen anything like this. There is nothing like the goodness of God. So when we see it on display, as we do so clearly in this story, our response should be the exact same. Never have we seen anything like this. One of my favorite verses right now is Psalm 16, verse 2, which says, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Apart from you. There is no good apart from God. So when all of a sudden we encounter such a display of goodness like these people did, we can know that it is from God and we can praise Him and worship Him for it. And this must be our response to Jesus as well. There are only two appropriate responses when it comes to Jesus. And then there's a third response that unfortunately most people take, which is completely illogical. But let me come back to that in just a second. Look. We have to make sure and get the main idea of this story correct. Um, Often, many times, you'll hear this text preached, and the main message of the sermon will be, man, uh, look at the great faith of these guys. We've got to have great faith like these guys. Go out and have great faith like these men. No, absolutely not. That is not the main idea of this story. What is the crowd's response to what has just happened? Not, man, look at those guys' faith. We have never seen any faith like that before. No, it was this Jesus is amazing. We have never seen anything like him before. They didn't praise the man, they praised God. The point of the story is not the faith of the men, but the greatness and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. The men did have great faith, and we should imitate that great faith, and we should pray for and long for faith like these guys had. But, but where did they get that faith? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says very clearly, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Or consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4, 17. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Our faith is a gift 
from God. And in Hebrews 12, 2, it talks about Jesus as the author of our faith. What is an author? An author is the one who creates something. He gives it life. He brings it to life. And this is what God has done for our faith. He has given us faith. It is a gift that he gives to us. Listen, I don't know if you've heard this before, but just in case you haven't, listen, the Bible is primarily not about you. Okay? The Bible is not primarily a, a list of rules or a code of, of how we should live. The Bible is first and foremost about God and how great he is and what he has done to save sinners like you and like me. Our response must be like these people's amazement and joy and gratitude for what he has done for us. So there are, I think, only two appropriate responses when it comes to Jesus that make any sense. And unfortunately, it's the third that most people take. Listen, Jesus either was who he said he was, and he actually did what he said he would do, and he actually came back from the dead, or he is a terrible, evil liar or one of the greatest lunatics in history. Those are really the only options when it comes to Jesus. And if it's the second, if he's a liar that just made all this up, or if he's some sort of crazy person, we should do nothing with him but hate him and reject him and completely ignore him. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how good your moral teachings are. If you walk around claiming to be God and you're not, you're crazy. And I don't really care about your teachings. All right? But, but if Jesus actually was God, if Jesus actually died in the place of sinners and he actually rose from the dead, then that changes absolutely everything. If all this is true, then the only response that makes any sense is to get on your face in submission and worship before him, the creator, God, and savior of the world. It's either love him and submit to him or completely hate him. There's, there's no middle ground with Jesus. And the response that doesn't make any sense at all is one of neutrality or, or apathy or, of, yeah, eh, not really caring. Yeah, Jesus, you know, I don't know. You should either absolutely hate him or absolutely love him. At least, kind of, at least man up and choose one of the two. Don't give me any of this nonsense of, uh, well, you know, he, was a, he had some nice things to say. He was this kind of good moral teacher who did some nice stuff. Nope, that response makes zero sense. He claimed to be God. He either was or he wasn't. There is no middle ground. Nice moral teacher doesn't make any sense when it comes to Jesus. And I also don't understand the response that, that many Christians, that many people who attend church regularly, that they kind of have towards Jesus. They say, yeah, you know, I believe he's God. I believe he died and came back and he did that for my sins. But their lives look no different from any other person around them. Their, their supposed belief and Jesus makes no real difference in their lives. They live like a Christian for about an hour and a half on Sunday mornings, but then the rest of the week, it's impossible to distinguish them from anybody else. They're just as angry and unpleasant and sinful as they were before they supposedly met Christ. And that makes no sense. If you've had a real encounter with the risen Christ, if Jesus has really saved you, it changes and affects everything. Think about Paul. Right? This guy hated Jesus. He hated the church. He's having people killed. He's on a road. He's on his way to have more of them arrested and killed. And what happens? He meets Jesus and everything changes. Paul is completely different after he meets Jesus than he was before he met him. This is what Jesus does. 
He does not mess around. Your life, if you have met Jesus, will look markedly different. You can see no difference in your life from before you supposedly met Christ to after. You may have a problem. Jesus does not mess around. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. When he forgives someone of their sins, he always also changes them as well. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes that if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has met the risen Christ, he is a new creation. He is something completely new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When Jesus saves someone, when God justifies someone, he always changes them. He always sanctifies them as well. Now, before we finish, I want to go back to that little question that Jesus asks. The question that he asked a few verses ago. He says, remember, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Or your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And we said that it's clearly easier just to say your sins are forgiven than to actually heal someone. I can say that to anybody, but I can't heal anybody. So it's got to be easier, right? But, think about it, but it is infinitely more difficult and impossible for man to actually forgive sins than it is to heal We have all kinds of amazing medicines and and technologies and all these great advancements and doctors today that can heal the sick and that can make the lame walk. We have still, with all of our brilliance, with all of our philosophy and, and technology and advancements, we have come up with no remedy whatsoever for sin and evil. It actually seems that things are getting worse. Uh, The 20th century was, hands down, the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. So we keep developing all these great things, and we just can't come up with something to do about this problem of evil or sin. We are utterly helpless to deal with our one real problem. It is easy for us today to heal, but it is impossible for us to cancel sins. It is easy for Jesus to heal. He can do it with just a word. It it costs him nothing. He walks around for Israel for three years, healing tons of people. One lady just sneaks up on him and just touches him, and she's healed. It costs Jesus nothing to heal. No effort whatsoever. But, and pay attention here, this this may sound wrong for a second, but hear me out. Jesus cannot, Jesus cannot just forgive sins by speaking a word. The actual forgiveness of the sins of this paralytic man and the sins of you and me cost Jesus infinitely more than any miraculous healing. You see, Jesus could declare this man's sins forgiven because of what was going to happen three short years later. Our God cannot just let sins slide. Yes, he is good and and love and all those things that we like to talk about, but he is also holy, meaning he is 100% pure. He expects perfection, and he's also just, meaning he never does wrong. When someone commits a crime, say someone murders your friend, You expect there to be justice. You expect the judge to act justly and to punish the person for their crime. It is only right and it is only just. It's the same with God. We are rightly angry when crimes are committed. When when someone is murdered, when, when babies are aborted, we feel angry and we should. But God is infinitely more offended by and angry at sin. He is perfect. He is holy. We are not. Yes, he is a God of love. But he is also an angry God. He is also full of wrath at sin. We are sinners. And and sin deserves death, as we said. There there must be justice. As there must be justice and payment for a murder, we all agree with that. We all expect that. There must likewise be a payment for the crimes that we have committed against God. 
but he is perfect. He is great. He is mighty and infinite. And we are finite, literal, dead sinners who could never appease this God. We could never do enough to pay for our great sins for this against this great God. So pay attention to this last part. This, this is eternally important. We can never pay what we owe. Never. So he pays it for us. Jesus can forgive this man's sins, and he can forgive yours and mine because he went to the cross in place of sinners. He took on your sin, and he took the wrath and the punishment of God that you deserved, and he paid for it. Don't forget this word. This is the one-word summary of the gospel. If you don't understand this word, you, you don't understand the gospel. Substitution. It's the heart of the gospel. What happens if you show up at school one day, and there's, there's someone different up there teaching your class? Right? You have a substitute teacher. She is standing in the place and taking the role of your former teacher. She is a substitute. Jesus Christ is our substitute. That's the gospel. He, he takes our place. He dies the death that we were supposed to die. Jesus can forgive our sins because he has already paid for them. You can't do it. I can't do it. I can never impress God. I can never be good enough to impress God. But Jesus Christ can and he has. And he offers you this forgiveness for free. You aren't required to stop sinning. You aren't required to be good enough first. You're not required to clean up your life first. You can come to God freely now. You are required just to believe in him, just to trust what Jesus did for you was enough. And the only thing that you're told to do is to turn and repent from your sins and trust in him. That's it. So as we close, I want us just to remember a few things um, as, as we go from here. First, remember that Jesus cares more about spiritual blessing than material. Jesus knew that having one's sins forgiven is infinitely more valuable than being healed of some sickness. Ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, taking care of some great physical need without addressing sin and separation from God is it's useless. Matthew 16.26 says, What will it profit a man... If he gains the whole world, yet loses his soul. Nothing is the answer. Absolutely nothing. You can be the richest, most good-looking, most successful, happiest person in the world. But if you die with your one problem, your separation from God not taken care of, it is all worthless and it has all been a waste. The spiritual is more important than the physical. But that doesn't mean that, that God doesn't care about the physical as well. He, he absolutely does. And, that's evidenced as by his three years traveling around and, and healing diseases and fixing all of these problems. Remember, God's good. He created the world and he created it good. We're the ones that went and messed it up. We brought the sin and the death and the sickness and the suffering into the world and, and God is all about fixing those problems. And again, this is clear by how much Jesus traveled around and healed. God cares about us and he cares about our bodies. But... Don't hear me saying that God ever promises that he will heal you. I mean, he doesn't. He never says it will definitely happen. He, he can heal and he does heal, but sometimes, sometimes he allows us to struggle. He allows us to suffer a little bit so that we can learn to trust in him and, and none of these earthly, worldly things. God cares about the physical, but not at the expense of the spiritual. Again, what good will it do a man if he gains the whole world but he forfeits his soul. Nothing. The physical without the spiritual first is absolutely useless. God cares about both, 
And he promises one day that he is going to restore both of them. So, so who can forgive sins but God alone? That's perfectly right. The scribes nailed it. But Jesus can, because Jesus is God. Our Savior is not some uh, wise teacher. He's not just some prophet or this pretty good guy that we should, you know, take his advice sometimes. No, he, he says that he is God himself. God in the flesh. He is God. He is both our substitute, our Savior, and our Lord and our God. And this is one of the things that, that most separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. And no other religion, nowhere else in the world will you find someone like Jesus. Nowhere else do you have God himself entering into the mess, taking on our flesh, becoming us, and then dying for us. You will not find the forgiveness of sins anywhere else. And no other religion will you find the one thing that you are really looking for. Peace, relief from your grief, forgiveness of your sins, Rest from your constant attempts to to prove yourselves or to justify yourself or or to save yourself or to convince yourself that you really matter. Jesus does that for us. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God. No one is saved apart from this Christ. And he doesn't just say the words, your sins are forgiven. No, he actually cancels the debt. He wipes the slate He gives his life, and he pays the penalty that you owed. He paid it all. On the cross, he says, it is finished. It's done. There's nothing else. And that is the gospel. And all we are called to do, he does it all, and then we are called to repent and believe. That's all Jesus says. He says, stop trying to, to prove yourself. Stop trying to save yourself and rest in my salvation. Trust in me and believe in me. And that's all that we are called to do to trust in the goodness of our God and the substitution of Jesus in our place. And then we too can be forgiven and saved and, and reconciled to God. Let's, let's pray as we close. Father, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you that, that it shows us our sin. Father, we need to know that, that we are sinful and that we are separated from you. But Father, I thank you that your word so much more abundantly displays your love and your mercy and your forgiveness. We thank you for Jesus Christ, Father. He is uh, something completely different. We have never seen anything like him, Father. I pray that that would be our response to Jesus as well. Forgive us for our apathy and our our kind of neutrality towards Jesus sometimes. Uh, Show us how great you are and how great he is and just give us a new love and a passion for him. pray for anyone in here who does not know you, Father. I pray that you would work in their hearts. Father, I can save no one. Uh, I can't say anything smart enough or great enough or say anything well enough to, to change someone's heart. But Father, you can, and I pray that you would uh, convict of sin and then bring people uh, to faith and repentance uh, for your glory. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this place and these people. I pray that you would continue to grow this place and get the gospel out in this place and and change and and bless these people and and glorify your name here. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.